Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Just a quick introduction to this podcast, because there are two subsequent introductions, one from Noah Kupferman, uh, whose idea this panel was, uh, and another from me as we get into the panel. But this recording comes from a Christie's Education panel on selling art in the digital age, held on February 12th, 2019, which happened to be a snowstorm in New York City. Welcome to Christie's. Thank you all very, very much for coming out on what is absolutely a horrendous evening out there weather-wise, um, braving the elements uh, and all that. This is the first evening among what will be ongoing, an ongoing series of events that we're going to do here at Christie's Education, providing a forum for discussion on the many facets of art business and the art market. So our topic of discussion this evening, as you know, is the analysis of selling art in the digital age. And while the backdrop of our so-called digital age has disrupted so many industries throughout the global, global economy, the business of the art market in many respects has remained remarkably unchanged. In fact, the art business is conducted strikingly similar manner to when our eponymous founder, James Christie, took to the rostrum in the 18th century to sell the many baubles and art artifacts that he did back in, back in those days, starting in 1766. And so our moderator for this evening uh, is Marion Manneker. Marion is the publisher of the Art Market Monitor, the leading website in our field, providing art market news, data, and analysis. And one thing that I think is interesting about Marion is that he has kindly provided a welcome alternative to fantasy football <laughs> with his art market monitor fantasy collecting game. If you don't know what that is, Google that. It's pretty fabulous, actually. It's quite fun. Uh, previous to being the publisher of Art Market Monitor, Marion has been a contributing editor at Slate, features editor at New York Magazine, and he has appeared often on national public radio, <laughs> as well as CNBC, as an art market expert. To Marion's left, to your right, is our Christie's colleague, Vivian Brody. Thank you for joining us. Vivian is a specialist in the Christie's post-war and contemporary art department. She's the head of our mid-season sales, as well as our online sales in post-war, where she oversees a series of live and online sales that are held in March, July, September, and December Anything else you'd like to do, just add it to the list. Yes. <laughs> um, sitting to Vivian's left is Elena Sobaleva. Thank you very much for joining us. Elena is the director of the online sales at David Zorner. In this role, Elena plays, leads sorry, the programming, curation, and strategy for the gallery's digital sale channels. Prior to joining Zorner's, she was with Artsy where she oversaw the growth of collector initiatives and programming. Fun fact. Elena is currently included in Artnet's 10 art influencers that you need to follow. Artnet describes her Instagram feed as, quote, a visual romp through the farthest reaches of art events. Fascinating. <laughs> 
And finally, thank, thank you for joining us. And finally, um, to, to Elena's left is Sam Orlovsky. Um, Sam is, uh, joins us from Gagosian Gallery, where he's a director and where he has been since 2001. Sam works closely with artists that include Dan Colin, Roe Etheridge, Mark Grosjean, among many others. He also curates exhibitions for the gallery, most recently the, the exhibition Laws of Motion, uh, which is currently on view at the gallery space in San Francisco. And without further ado, I would like to hand it over to Marion Maniker. Thank you, thank you, Noah. Uh, thank you all for coming out to, tonight. Um, I just uh, want to give you a little sense of how we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to talk for half an hour and then take questions, because I presume you will have a fair number of questions. Uh, I get to ask my questions first for that half a, a hour, but uh, please chime in uh, afterwards. Um, I also just want to frame this briefly. To me, the... Um, the prospect of selling art through some other web means than direct contact. They, art is a high-touch business, they like to say in business school. It requires someone to sell to another person, often face-to-face, -face, but certainly with a great deal of uh, uh, contact. Um, the promise of the digital age has been that we've seen in many other industries that that kind of selling has been transferred to various digital mechanisms. And it's always been presumed that it was inevitable such would happen with art, and yet it's been slow going. There have been a lot of um, uh, movement towards creating different ways of uh, selling art, uh, for lack of a better term, online. Uh, but so far, there has not been a transformation uh, of the industry. And yet, in the last year or two, it has seemed like significant uh, changes have taken place. And that's part of what we're here to talk about and why these three are here, because they are actually involved in that transition. Uh, and part of that transition seems to be that there are uh, large institutions in the art market with uh, global footprints and brand names that are using uh, digital means to create other forms of contact and sales. And what I really want to do tonight is, is sort of talk about how, how art gets sale, uh, sold in you know, the basic mechanics of it, but also in this uh, digital age. And, and I should, as a transition, uh, uh, Christie's just released its um, 2018 sales figures, and one of the significant aspects of that was that the uh, online channel is a significant portion of the new customers who come into the auction business, really the, the whole en enterprise. And one of the big questions, I know I've you know, discussed this with um, uh, uh, Christie's CEO, is how you take that digital contact and turn it into a deeper uh, uh, selling contact, which isn't always as obvious as, as we might think. So to get us started, I thought I'd ask Elena, who has uh, worked at Artsy for the last number uh, of years, has a, uh, a, a significant footprint on, on Instagram, and has been, sort of been swimming in this world for uh, quite some time, to talk a little bit about her experience at Artsy, what you learned there, what everyone, I guess, lear learned there, and then tell us a little bit about what you're doing as you've transitioned to David's Werner Gallery. 
Well, thank you so much. And um, is this working okay? Perfect. Um, and thank you for joining. Another little fun fact I'll mention is my first writing job in New York was for the Art Market Monitor. So <laughs> that was eight years ago, to give it some context. Um, and this is true. <laughs> so um, in 2012, I started with Artsy while it was still in beta. Um, that was a very exciting time, and obviously, I really sort of saw the platform grow and blossom and really evolve in its, uh, its all the business stages. And so, you know, I started as a specialist, which at the time was very manual, um, very um, sort of tedious job where you had to uh, convince galleries that they wanted to receive inquiries from the collectors that you had coming in. Um, at that point, everything was super, super, um, you know, manual. We would be on Gmail asking galleries like Gagosian, who was one of the earliest partners on Artsy, um, can we introduce this inquiry to you? And like any other startup, the sort of motto was always do things that don't scale so that you can learn and then scale up. And sort of integrating those to both the art world um, mentality as well as the tech world mentality has always been very much at the core of what I've done um, in my background. Um, with Artsy, sort of going through the inquiry process and being able to scale it up as more and more collectors started inquiring, then understanding ways to create sort of a global footprint for Artsy. Um, there was a year where I traveled to over 35 fairs just to visit and create events in all the different locations to start to talk to the different audiences there. And um, eventually branching out into projects that um, really connected with our collector audience um, at Artsy through offline channels and really understanding how online and offline work together was really the key there, um, which was an amazing sort of full spectrum adventure. Um, and, um, you know, amongst the things I did there was partake in launching some of the earliest online auctions, which now has been a really key driver for collectors um, purchasing art. And I know since I left, they've really launched um, a couple more initiatives like Buy Now and Make an Offer. Uh, this summer, I transitioned to working um, as the online uh, sales director at David's Werner, which has been an incredible privilege. It's a program that I've loved and admired for so long already. Um, really, I was attracted to and what brought me over to the gallery world was the fact that they were the first uh, of their kind to launch this viewing room platform. So two years ago, they launched a platform exclusively dedicated to um, very much this curated space for art to be shown online. Um, it's really the gallery sees it and David sees it as a six gallery space, which means that it's not just a mirror and a reflection of what happens in the gallery, but really a standalone space that is resourced in the same way. We have a registrar, we have you know, research dedicated to it, we have the resources that you would for a gallery in a different location. And that's been very exciting in terms of overseeing and growing those efforts of the online viewing room alongside our sort of other channels such as available works, art fairs, and the marketplaces we participate in. Sam, uh, you've launched an online viewing room uh, as well with a slightly different focus. It's sort of a, um, a way of expanding access at a fair, uh, both early and after and, and sort of around the actual booth it itself. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, that initiative, but also I, I know you were also involved in, in in artsy and some of the you know what you learned there. Sure, uh, can you hear me? Okay, so the online viewing room at Gagosian and my 
involvement with it comes from a very parallel place, which is to say that <clears throat> in the first decade of the 2000s, Gagosian had gone through an extreme um, period of expanding the physical footprint. Larry uh, opening galleries in many cities and becoming as global as possible. And I was very fortunate in the sense that it was a, because it was a period of a lot of expansion, there was also a lot of opportunity. And one of the things I always uh, enjoy doing is working with artists. The more galleries we had, the more shows we needed to put on, the more opportunities there were for me to propose exhibitions with artists. This kind of culminated in 2008 when we took a temporary space in Moscow. And that was sort of the most ambitious venture to date in terms of reaching out into a new collector population, trying to be as global as possible. Obviously, the financial crisis occurred. Uh, I think Lehman Brothers went out of business the day we opened uh, in Moscow. Good timing. So timing was suboptimal. But we, you know, we learned some lessons. One of the things that we learned was that the seemed like a lot of the Russian guys just moved to London. So we were, we kind of doubled down in London. Um, and we started to look to open in Hong Kong. And look, we looked at mainland China, we looked at Hong Kong. And so I was, I had kind of volunteered to do a lot of the exploratory phases of those projects. So around 2010, like when we had also opened in Hong Kong, these guys through a relationship, uh, some relationships of Larry's, which were Dasha, Zukova, and Wendy Murdoch, came and pitched this company, which was Artsy. And he had included me in the meeting, and we sort of discussed what the potential we saw was for this company. And I think we saw it as a next phase where instead of opening brick and mortar, uh, instead of expanding in a brick and mortar sense, here was a way to expand technologically and try to reach as many collectors as possible. So I was fortunate there in the sense that I kind of, I became a, de facto advisor of Artsy, and I got to see from day one, I was on the, you know, pretty much on the ground level, and gave them a lot of advice as to <clears throat> what I thought my colleagues at other galleries would be receptive to, what their apprehensions would be, what their concerns would be, what the barriers would be, and sort of try to help them build the thing that would have the greatest chance of getting those people to participate. So, <clears throat> That, you know, kind of obviously started to succeed and took on more and more of a, a life of its own. And as some of the other global galleries, you know, made their ambition more known, uh, my boss Larry is like the most competitive person in the history of the planet, is always saying, you know, what are they doing? What can we be doing? You know, why aren't we doing more of this? What can we, why can't we be doing more of that? So uh, selling art online was a very you know, was a very obvious thing for him to say, why aren't we doing more of that? Could we be doing more of that? And that, the good news is, you, you know, you know you have his support at that stage. The bad news is, I'm not a technologist. I don't come from that background. Nobody at the gallery comes from that background. So it's just a question of starting somewhere. And by the way, no one else knew what to do. It's not like there was a defined answer. For every failed business was an answer to a question, maybe this is the way to do it, and just because it didn't succeed doesn't mean it wasn't a valid question. Right. So, so we had been, through Artsy and through our own Gagosian online shop, and as we were growing our social media imprint, 
noticing that you know we were generating more and more sales. So it seemed to me the the thesis or the idea is to basically create some experiments. Run you know create a spider web or a mouse trap. Create a place where you can see if we do this, what were the variables, what were the controls, and have it try hopefully be as apparent as possible whether or not something succeeded or failed. So the idea I threw out was to do this online viewing room. The idea was that there's a certain time of the year, certain times of the year when people have a fear of missing out on these very popular art world activities, especially art fairs. There had actually been some fatigue. I mean, as you'd added all these fairs, more and more people were starting to have to pick and choose and say, I can't go to nine fairs a year. And so the idea was to, the idea was that there would be a week or two around the time of a fair when people who wished they could have gone to the fair and are jealous or curious about what people are up to at the fair, what's selling, what's available, would remotely, you know, want to do some, uh, experience some facsimile of that. So we uh, we initiated this online viewing room, which was to run, you know, a few days before the fair. The idea being that people, uh, sorry, we did it around uh, freeze, I think. And so the idea being that people would over the weekend before the fair, that's when somebody would have enough time to themselves to go on their computer or their iPad and start to review the checklists. What you know? What did Zorner send me? What did Hauser send me? What did Gregosian send me? And that we would give them a more curated, concise selection of work where the prices were available so they wouldn't have to contact a salesperson or say, what's the price? And if they wanted to take the next step and pursue acquiring something, they could. The big step there, which will sound embarrassingly silly to everyone here, is the price transparency. In general, we do not make prices available to anyone. We're very guarded about it. We're very selective about it. And so to me, the competitive advantage I saw, the opportunity I saw was, let's flip it. Let's make all the prices public and see how much more traction or how much traction we can gain, we can be rewarded with as a result of having done that. And it was, it was very successful. We sold you know, like $1.8 million worth of art. I had said from the start, my goal is to sell a million dollar painting. We did in the first online viewing room. That was a sort of a reference back to common knowledge at Artsy in a way, which is that lower price point things are easier to sell. I mean, I think in the business, everyone feels that it's easier to get things that are less precious, larger edition sizes, things that are poppier and populate the, the online sales attempts with those things, I was, I was saying, I wonder if we put a really special painting that we know there's a lot of demand for with a pretty impressive price tag, could we still sell it? And we did. We sold an Albert Erlen painting. Were you able to sell it without someone following up with a phone call and you know turning it into some sort of a normal relationship, either them coming into the booth or getting on the phone? Great with... question. So, so it wasn't like click to purchase as in you fill out your credit card info. Great, great distinction, great point. It brought you to an available Gagosian salesperson who then walked you through the steps. It turned out it was somebody who had some relationship with somebody else at the gallery, so they triangulated, and you now had two Gagosian salespeople working together with this client, seeing them through to the point of sale. So we did that once, it was a success, we have done it a second time, and we now have plans to 
expand it in more ambitious ways that I think are still hopefully going to be a bit of a surprise when they, when they happen later this year. I want to get back to the price transparency issue a little bit later, but uh, first I want to ask you, Vivian, since you have a great deal more price transparency than than most, and you know you work at a, a, a small shop trying to compete with these uh, uh, big ones, uh, uh, how it works for you, where you have one, you have auctions rather than. Um, exhibitions, not that Christie's doesn't, but the, the thrust of your business. And, and how does the dynamic work for you between the auctions and what you're trying to sell uh, online? M meaning the live auctions, the rest of your business, sure. and the, the, what, this channel you're trying to create. Um, so I came um, back to Christie's for a second tour in 2016, um, specifically to focus on their online and mid-season channels. Um, for those of you that don't know, mid-season is kind of our opening um, sale of the season that takes place in March and September. That's usually an indicator sale for what's going to happen in the larger auctions in May and November of post-war and contemporary art. Um, when I started, our online auctions were pretty small in scale. Um, we had one online auction a year um, in July, uh, which was called First Open. Um, and we had several Andy Warhol online sales at that time. Um, last year, in 2018, we had 10 online sales. Um, all of those sales saw sell-through uh, rates between 75 and 90%, um, which is a huge shift in the past two years at Christie's. Um, and we see a lot of our new buyers come from online sales. So similar to what Sam was speaking about, about initial point of contact, um, that's really one of the greatest benefits of online sales to Christie's as a platform. Um, our online sales range between $800,000 and $2.5 million total across around 200 lots normally. Um, when I started, those sales were much lower. They were about 100, uh, 100 lots and a $1 million um, per sale. So that's a pretty big growth in 24 months. Um, and we've the online model at Christie's is very different from, say, Artsy or Paddle 8. I actually worked at Paddle 8 prior to Christie's. Um, I also worked for fab.com. We bought um, the rest of the Andy Warhol Foundation after Christie's took the first batch of it. Um, and in both of those instances, the um, seller was not in control of the property. Christie's um, actually takes everything in online, so we do all of the same research um, and due diligence on every artwork physically um, that we sell online, which is a pretty big difference from other um, online platforms. We also... Um, have a huge brand name. And I think that's really what contributes to our online success, is that when you tell someone that they're buying something from Christie's, um, they can buy it online, they can buy it in a day sale, they can buy it in an evening sale. You're really getting a guarantee of quality um, that you might not see elsewhere in the marketplace. And that's really where we found our success. But I would agree that you know our online platform is where you start talking to a client, and sometimes the next season they're buying in a, in a day sale or higher level. Is it mostly just blind incoming, meaning you put things up, you know you've got these other sales taking place, and then it's you're just waiting to see people come and uh, either transact or make an inquiry ba based on what's uh, available? Or are you getting uh, uh, intel, uh, not feedback, but from your potential market about what, you, what they want to see and what might bring them to you? So I would say both. Um, on the one hand, we have a huge campaign of digital marketing that 
follows you around the internet. I'm sure it follows all of you around the internet. Um, so if you've clicked on a lot, you will see that elsewhere. Um, and we do get a lot of new bidders that way, but we also have a huge amount of outreach. So if, you, if there's a client that has previously bid on an Andy Warhol drawing and you are the person speaking to that client, you will get an email saying, hey, there's something that might be of interest to your client. So it's really both inbound and outbound. It, once someone has made uh, a purchase through one of your online sales, mm -hmm. Uh, do they ever speak to or have direct contact with anyone uh, at Christie's, a business getter or a specialist? Yes. How does that work? Um, usually with an email, still online. So if I buy a, um, you know, a, a fifteen thousand uh, dollar work in one of your online sales, as part of the transaction or after the transaction, I'll get an email from someone uh, in your department who just wants to make sure I'm happy, say hello, see what else I'm interested, start yes. that relationship and get permission to continue to have contact. Absolutely. Um, what I, I will point out for that though, um, I've been working in online auctions for over five years. Uh, one of my biggest clients um, in the online auction space, I've actually never met in person. Um, he only bids online and we only email. He, we've never spoken on the phone either. Um, so I would say He's the perfect client. <laughs> so there is definitely still, you know, relationships that purely exist online. Um, Vivian just brought up uh, digital marketing. Uh, you know, Chrissy's has a, a huge uh, uh, interest in, in doing that across everything that they do. Is that something you guys uh, invest in? I'm gonna, first, I'm going to ask you, Elena, but you know, uh, uh, you too, Sam. I mean, digital marketing is definitely part of a holistic strategy we have for the gallery and absolutely tied with all our initiatives. I think you can't really have online sales without thinking of how you're gonna then, um, you know, gonna really broadcast that to the audience that you're trying to reach. But it, it seems like in both your cases, certainly what you did at, at Artsy and Sam, what you just described, that um, the physical aspect of selling art, art fairs, these events, is the marketing that helps people either schedule or draw interest or just sit down. You know, it's an excuse to get those emails with or, or the invitation to the viewing room of all this material. It's not something you can do without that. I mean, Vivian's got, got regular auctions. You guys have art fairs and, and all. And same, uh, I don't think it's clear that you can't do it without those things. What's What's clear for us is that the, you know, the sequence or the order is kind of reversed in the sense that the brand has been built first, as in both of these other cases, and the, the success of the business model has been established first, and now we're looking at other ways to spin it off. And so in our case, there, we have a million Instagram followers. We have 300 and something thousand Twitter followers. So yes, we are, we are advertising and targeting people on those platforms, but we are still really experimenting to see what works. We don't know, and it, again, it's just starting somewhere and hoping that you accumulate enough data to see patterns or to learn lessons. And so we're really just still only in that stage, but it's that the brand has a following and we then reach out to the followers and it's not clear, you know, who has what net worth, or who is what age, or what you know, what, where in their uh, cycle of being a potential collector they may be, and that's what we're trying to get a little further and drill down on. Well, that that's a good way back into the price transparency issue. Um, 
I, I think this is always one of the, the curious things about the art market is there are many assumptions about why things happen that often turn out to be the opposite of um, why they're there. Uh, and often it's just, you know, silly or small things like, you know, you want the flexibility to be able to, to tell a price when you know what the price is rel relative to that moment, that client, and, and so forth. So is switching to that kind of price transparency just a matter of um, sort of choosing the right uh, moment and time to say, okay, we're going to lock it in, you know, five days beforehand, here are the prices that we're listing for these work, or does it change the way you sort of approach the digital uh, side of this? Yeah, I can answer that since... Um but the viewing room, which is the exhibition portal within David's Werner, has been um, always we had prices. And so it's kind of been you have to enter your email address to log in. So there's kind of a um, something that you're giving us so that we're collecting some information about our collectors who are coming in. However, then it is um, what would have seemed five years ago radical to have all the prices uh, online. Uh, which has been an amazing uh, experience, seeing that transition. And so um, in, in that sense, um, we see that um, the collectors coming in, and I would say these generally are at the younger stage of collectors, really appreciate that, because for them, that breaks down the barrier. That sort of starts a conversation already at a point where uh, someone is informed and knowledgeable and can make an inquiry um, with that information. Um, and at Artsy, we used to see that you know it was much, um, it was generally less inquiries when you had the price, but higher quality. Um, yeah, I'm still sort of feeling out how you know that is going to play out in a larger market, but I think that um, especially the newer generation of collectors really appreciate that um, transparency and um, accessibility that you're offering them. Well, you, you both just talked about brands. I'm sorry, all three just talked about brands, and one of the, the uh, powers of a brand is it creates a level of trust and familiarity, which... I presume a lot of the way you guys sell art is not, you know, walk into this booth or walk into the gallery and this is your one time. It's not like buying a car. It's you you have often have relationships that may get um, turned into a sale at particular moments when you either have the right work for uh, uh, the client or they happen to be in the right moment uh, of you know whatever their their search is. Is that something you sort of switch to the you know high touch model? It just becomes having a relationship and, and staying in, in touch with them, or is there a way that having these um, uh, digital relationships can make it easier to sort of modulate uh, uh, how you uh, sell to your clients? Well, I would address a earlier stage of that again, which is just um, in testing out a thesis as to what might work. Uh, we're proposing a trade, right? Which is that in the conventional version of how the gallery works, we have the control in, in the sense that the person comes in and we, you know, we have the information and there's a bit of a, a dance there. And in this case, you know, but they've made the effort and we can... Let me just yeah. flesh that out for a second. <laughs> the The dance is, what can I get? Where is my status? Yeah. And not just, you know, based on my collection, based on my uh, net worth, based on my relationship with your various other artists and all, all. I mean, there's a lot that goes into selling 
art that really you know d doesn't come easily just into tick a box. But but what's apparent is the cost that the gallery incurs in running that business and the the investment. Here we're saying this is a much cheaper way to get a to get a client. Like our business would run great if we could just get all of our clients this way. But since that's so much easier, we have to give you something in exchange for that ease. And so, so the something in exchange is the availability and the transparency. And we're, because we're saying like, we know we didn't have to work anywhere near as hard to get you. Like you're over there, we're over here. We, you know, we didn't have to pay art handlers to put on a show. So here's I'm pre-sold. <laughs> yeah. So here's what we'll give you in exchange. Maybe this can get us closer to one another. That's sort of, like hopefully what attracts people. Now, what you do after that, I think these guys, you especially have a lot more experience than we do at this point. You both do. I, I can say the, the one um, amazing thing that I've seen coming um, to the gallery, uh, which I actually didn't realize from outside of it, um, is that when you inquire online, your inquiry will go to um, a director or senior partner or someone within the sales team and very much every inquiry and every new collector gets treated like they would coming into the gallery or coming into a fair booth with um, attention and respect. And you know, you're know you not getting, um, you're getting the full attention of the gallery. And I think that's, um, that's an amazing experience and it also sets it up for sort of um, a, a lengthy relationship. So for us, you know, we are, the business model as it is is working. And so for us, this is an amplification and something that we see as, you know, that we want to meet our collectors and our clients where they are as well in sort of a holistic process for us. And so um, to really be able to communicate with them through all the channels, social, digital, online, physical, that they're on, um, you know, is, is sort of the strategy. Vivian, uh, uh, you, you are... Are you a silo or are you a a bridge between you know your cu customers and the rest of uh, the contemporary department? Um, definitely a bridge. I would say our online sales, from the seller point of view, offer um, a very ease a very easy way to sell. So you have slightly more options with online sales. You're not waiting for that May or November slot, um, especially for something that's maybe slightly lower value. This can happen faster for our sellers, which is really important. Um, on the buyer side, anyone that comes in and buys something online is going to hear from a Christie specialist, um, from someone on the team and get the full experience. Um, and I wouldn't say that all of our buyers in the online platform are new, actually. I, we will often get um, calls from very established Christie's clients that say, I don't know how to make a password and I need help because I really want this thing that's online. Um, and it's quite confusing to them, actually. I was going to say, at which point you say, right, look, we'll just take the transaction and give it to you. I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed to bid for them, but I have tried. Um, but so our online sales are definitely a bridge um, in the department, across departments. Um, lots of other departments at Christie's have online sales as well. So we have very successful um, handbag sales, jewelry sales. Um, in the post-war department, we also divide up slightly by media. So we have a um, on-paper sale that takes place at the end of February or early March. Um, so we use this as a place to experiment with different markets, to bring in new clients, but also really to help our sellers. And, and what's it like internally? Is it literally just like your number's up and you get the, uh, you know, the next person who co comes in? Is there a way of uh, apportioning and is there competition for these these uh, new clients? I mean, um, this is the lifeblood of, of anyone who sells is new clients and uh, finding the right client. Yeah, so this is, um, my team handles all of that. So when we get all the new buyers after, we very politely 
divide them up. And to be honest, it's a very long Excel sheet, so it's not so it's not so much fighting that happens. Um, but when people call and ask questions, you know, at Christie's, if you pick up the phone, you could have a million dollar phone call, a fifteen million dollar phone call, or a very annoying phone call. Um, and you know, taking saying yes and picking up the phone and walking downstairs when someone asks a question—that's how you get clients um, and really being present. So you're still pretty early in what you're doing, but how has the rest? I mean, you have a large selling organization, and you know, in in the art business, it's not just your boss who's competitive; it is a a competitive selling organization. Are they coming to you? Uh, to sort of get in on what you're doing? Or are you still like, well, that's that thing Sam's uh, doing, and good luck to him? Good question. Uh, I've noticed uh, an age split. I've noticed that my younger colleagues seem to see it as an opportunity to get consignments. It's, it's a service that they feel they can offer clients who they're trying to convince to give us something for sale and say that, you know, this may never see the best wall on day one of the Basel Fair, but here you know it's going to stand alone, it's going to get marketed, it's going to reach a million people on Instagram. So that's where I've seen the greatest traction within the gallery is other colleagues, especially younger ones, recognize an opportunity to help bring in consignments. So instead of something getting pulled out of the closet at a fair, it looks on par with everything else in its way and has a better chance right. of the, the buyer seeing it as a choice opportunity. And I've been pleasantly surprised, you know, when, when we've had short brainstorming sessions, I've been pleasantly surprised at how little resistance I've had when I've sort of fed the sales pitch, so to speak, like here's what I would say to your potential consigner. It, it's been pretty effective. Like the people haven't argued and they've gone and come back with secured consignments pretty quickly. That's a major thing at Christie's as well, the marketing. You would never see a $100,000 painting on the cover of an evening sale, but you would have it on the cover of an online sale, which is a pretty big difference, and clients like it. I would say um, we're in a little bit different approach here, which is why I'll add that um, because our, our sales team are very much um, in, in favor of this, but largely because they are also the ones working with the artists. And I would say that um, the, even the reason kind of to back up why the viewing room and the online initiative started at David Zwerner is the fact that really underpins the rest of the gallery philosophy, which is really to serve the clients and the estates we represent. And in that way, I think um, looking to the future, everyone sort of realizes that you really, um, to serve your artists the best, you really have to be engaging and amplifying across all platforms. And so um, one of the great things has been uh, seeing the artists uh, become aware and excited of the initiative and seeing it as this six gallery space. Um, I have one last question before I'm gonna open it up to the audience, but you just made me realize, um, is everything been sold online, secondary market uh, material? No, and that, that fills in at least half of it, which is that, uh, so for example, Katarina Grossa has given us primary market paintings for both viewing rooms. They've both sold, I think we've actually sold a second painting each time as a result. Gursky gave permission to participate. Like The, the harder part is convincing one of the artists that this is the the right place for a coveted primary work market work direct from the studio to go. 
but we've tried to have a pretty much a 50-50 balance if possible. And is there any concern about it being sort of out of context? It's not being sold either within a show or uh, supplemental to a show? In an artist's fantasy, hierarchically, it's museum show, gallery show, and then everything else, art fair booth, you know, online art fair booth would probably be below. But I think we've enjoyed, I've been enjoying the opportunity to, again, show them this is something that we and maybe only a couple other competitors are capable of doing for them, and that Funny enough, more people might see something at an art fair booth and many more people might see something in, in our online booth than would ever see it in a museum or gallery show. And again, they've been increasingly receptive to that. I would just add that definitely I think the perception is shifting. And um, in our um, last viewing room with uh, Charles White, the estate, we actually sold the majority of works went to an institution, or actually multiple institutions. So. Through the online viewing yep. room? So I, I do think that, you know, there's sort of, we're opening up new channels. Why didn't you guys publicize that more? You should, you should have been bragging about that. Well, uh, just, just tell me more about that. Why? What, uh, was there any particular reason that the, that just the works that interested them? It, or? It's because we're putting up fresh, exciting new material. And that is the difference of not just mirroring what you have as an exhibition space, but really curating this. And I think what Sam says as well um, is really creating this thoughtfully as sort of uh, an extension of the gallery's program. So instead of it being this disembodied and always the suspicion that these are just the unsold uh, 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 items and all, you guys have all created either through events or uh, connection to physical uh, 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 spaces, uh, the, the perception that this is an opportunity rather than... Yeah, and part of uh, the nice thing about timing hours to the art fair, the physical art fair booth, is that in general art fair booths are a little bit of an opportunity to cut the line. And so again, if this feels like you've, you know, if you get there first, you've cut the, the line being the waiting list, theoretically, then that's something that will appeal to people and be a magnet for people. And so I think that's part of what's going on there as well. Well, that's a different version of transparency, isn't it? Uh, it's like, this is for sale now, <laughs> you make me, which makes also the pricing easier, uh, right? It's like, if you're willing to pay the, the yep. listed price, it's yours. There's no sense of, well, I've got to check with and see where else everything goes. Um, I, I wanted to stay true to my word, though I'm a little late. Uh, do we have any questions? I'll get, get to you in the back, but you first. We failed to get a microphone on the first questioner. But her question was simply, did the online provenance pose any sort of risks for selling the work later? No, no one wants to touch that? It hasn't, no, no, no. It, it hasn't come up yet. I mean, I, you know, I think if I was playing fighting dirty and trying to convince, you know, an artist not to do it, that would probably be the type of thing I would say. But that's not the position I'm in. I'm trying to convince artists to participate or consigners to participate. And so I don't, it hasn't been an issue. I don't think anybody views the work as having um, less, you know, less of a pristine or, or less of a flattering history for having gone through this channel. I think there's actually a little bit more of an excitement of people to have taken the leap and gone first. You know, I think that people, there's a thrill, of, a little bit, of, a tiny bit of a thrill of adventure of having tried this avenue. Do you vet the uh, buyers in any way? Uh, you, you know, online, can someone just put in a credit card, or do you have to know who they are and at least have some understanding of who you're selling to? Uh, well, to iterate again, this is an inquiry process that we have on our own website. 
Um, so you still, when you inquire, you are put through directly to one of our sales team members. And so this is much like you would walk into a fair booth or the gallery. It's just a way of starting the conversation. Um, so still, you'd go through the same process. Um, I would say that um, Artsy is experimenting with buy now um, technology. So I think that is an interesting uh, foray, but that is certainly um, not something that uh, our gallery is sort of pursuing. Uh, going off a little bit of a lot of what I've heard tonight on both the secondary and primary market, uh, how far do we want this to scale up? And why I ask that is we know that the art world's never going to really become you know, traditional retail. Uh, there is something special about going seeing something or being even a part of an inner circle. That's just the reality of the art world. Uh, there's the convenience, of course, as Vivian was mentioning, that you can give someone with a $100,000 painting the opportunity for a cover of a catalog. That's fantastic. Uh, there's also ways, uh, you know, reaching buyers who can't make it to an art fair to go somewhere. But where, what's the right place for sort of the online aspects of, you know, transactions? In other words, how, how, how big does this book before the, the mass market aspect of this begins to devalue buying art? If it's too easy to buy, you know, if you've got uh, 10,000 uh, uh, Jeff Koons uh, balloon dog plates, uh, are they not as valuable as uh, a giant balloon dog? Sure. Um, well, I think, first of all, the art world in the past 50 years has expanded in a massive way. There you know, thousands of more people studying art every year, making art every year. You're seeing so many more galleries in New York City alone and other cities around the world um, than have ever existed before. Um, I think we're pretty far away from that saturation point of art not being exclusive or not being something special. Um, for me, art is a lens to look at the world. It's a way to travel. It's a way to meet amazing people, to talk to artists that are some of the most brilliant and odd people on the planet um, and get a different point of view. And I think there's a lot of room to grow with that. And I think um, with online art sales, it's a really democratic way to sell art. I, you know, we're talking about skipping the line and, and opening this up in the primary market space. Um, Christie's is different, obviously. If you can participate, you're more than welcome to. Um, but it's really exciting for me when we see diff the different states and the different countries that these buyers are coming from that you know, you would never have seen even two years ago, 12 months ago, um, just that network expanding constantly, I think is a good thing. And I think we're pretty far away from it being too big. I would definitely agree. I mean, if you think about the art market is still so saturated and 40% of it is still within New York, that what online really offers is the ability for people um, outside, especially these major urban areas, uh, which have the auction houses and galleries to participate. So there is just sort of, it feels like infinite expansion possibilities. Thank you all for your time being here this evening. Um, early in the conversation, Mr. Olofsky talked about experimentation and how it's a bit of a rodeo still and how you're trying to identify and determine different patterns. Um, I would just be curious, what are some of the things that you've tried that you thought would work that didn't work? And what were some interesting insights that you learned from that? So unfortunately, the again, the sample size is still really small. We've only done this twice. Um, but there was one very clear change we made from the first online viewing room to the second, which was that if people wanted to register and leave their email address, there was sort of there was a landing page and a uh, like a lead up period where you saw a calendar clicking down, telling you when it would go live. Once it went live, we got rid of that uh, that place where you could leave your email 
uh, contact info, and we switch to a direct, like a direct message, message messenger, you know, uh, portal. The drop off was staggering, like alarming, like almost nobody. We thought the thing that people were going to be most attracted to was the convenience to 24-7 have a Gagosian person on call that they could have a text exchange with, an email exchange with. And it was like crickets. And what we realized was that that was too intense a difference of experience. And that there were people who were interested in following it, who wanted to go along for the ride, but the same way you might not at an art fair want to go all the way up to the salesperson and talk to them three feet away because you're scared they're going to try to sell you something or embarrass you about how much money you have or don't have. This was actually the equivalent of that, which was the whole thing we were looking to eliminate doing. So the second time, we created a way of people to continue to get updates and leave a trace of themselves to have people correspond with them throughout that wasn't so intense and direct. So that was, that was a really great lesson we learned just from... It, we were proud to have identified it as a, like a failure, so to speak, and we were really happy to have proposed a, an improvement or a solution, and then we saw that it did get better results the second time. Did you learn anything from the VIP art fair? Is that the one I remember, the James Cohen? I mean, you participated in, in, in that. Did you take learnings from it? I mean, I, both of you. I love it when stuff doesn't work because it, to me, gives the people who believe you're, this, is gonna, th this is all inevitable an advantage to, if you keep going. Because you have people who dip their toe in, water's too hot or too cold, whichever it is, and they're like, ah, see, I told you this, this was never going to work. And it buys the people who are willing to roll the dice an even greater head start to keep going if you're willing to keep going. That's how I see the VIP art fair. But, but there was nothing specific like what you I just think it, was, it didn't work, remember? It yeah, crashed. There, there, yeah. there was that too. <laughs> <laughs> Eleni, you were going to say something? I, I was going to say I, I didn't participate because uh, I was at Artsy at the time. Wow. <laughs> Hi. So my question is, how do you think that your ability to kind of, or creativity to orchestrate kind of like a pathway of conducting a sale and leading it up to a transaction will kind of continue to challenge you and kind of because you always you keep saying that you have to give in every time you want to increment a sort of um, your kind of path in the online business or adapting the online into your sales. So I'm just wondering. Do, uh, the the path that you have to follow, you, she was going off what you said about having to give something in return. Do you see other things that you have to, you know, give next or other opportunities you can do that changes the relationship that's more appropriate to online se selling? Right. I well, I think in a funny way, these they're, they're both better because we're we're already internally we're kind of off on some very experimental tangents, and they don't necessarily follow that logic in that way. Whereas I think what they're doing has to function at scale, otherwise, you know, it does it has to function at scale. So I think you guys are probably better poised to answer. I, I was just gonna say I think um, 
I think that idea of um, you know whether you give something more or, or less, um, it, it's really, I mean, online is about transparency and openness, but it's also this opportunity to A, B test everything. And so I think that's where it really um, is that with every step you make, you see if it improves the conversion rate. You see if it actually like changes something. And that's where I think you can make really um, interesting headway and really learn because we're all learning this sort of from scratch and really exploring this sort of new terrain. And that is the ultimate way to um, to go forward is to, with everything that you know we do, we sort of see, uh, we make the action, we wait for the response, we look at the analytics and feedback, and we continue. But also, of course, balancing that with sort of the intuition and knowledge of the art world. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you one interesting thing that uh, as recently that I've been very impressed with is the gallery posting the art fair previews um, as we would in the PDF format to our um, you know, best clients are now available online. And it's just been an amazing response of how many people uh, prefer even existing clients to go and browse that on the website um, and like the ability that from anywhere they can access that and inquire directly. Uh, Vivian, can I just follow up on what Sam said about it has to scale? Do do you have to scale as your you know um, your corporate directive to grow your sales, or are you as long as you are, are bringing in new customers and those customers or some percentage of them are continuing on? Are you sort of hitting your uh, goals that way? Um, that's a complicated question because we have a lot of different kind of gauges of success of these sales. So I think you could say, um, yes, I would say one of our goals is to increase the sell-through rate of every sale. So we view that if 90% sells of a sale, that's better than 70% selling. Um, and we have seen those numbers grow. We have also experimented with how many lots can an online sale hold, um, in our opinion. And we definitely find that there's a sweet spot in how many things should be in a sale. You know, do our Collectors want to scroll for an hour down a page? Absolutely not. Um, how can we make it easier for them to find things? How long does it take to close a sale in one day? Are we comfortable closing it over two days? Um, these are conversations we have. And I think what's really interesting, what we've all been talking about, and I think um, is a big indicator about these, is the pricing transparency is a really interesting part of this. Um, we find that those levers are almost always moving in positive directions if we're pricing correctly. Um, so if our estimates are correct and our reserves and starting bids are correct, we're seeing those numbers increase, um, which is success for us in a, in a major way. Um, I see uh, a head of online sales in this panel, a new director of online sales on this panel. I know Gagosian recently hired the chief technology officer. Uh, what other investments are you making in people around online and selling online and technology in the next year? Um, well, I'm, I'm happy to answer that, DV, uh, <laughs> as um, I, I'm currently building out a team. Uh, much like we would staff a gallery, we are looking at um, online sales as a team that requires um, sales assistance, registrar, and this sort of support from research, archives, photo, everything else. And, you know, I think that's um, because the model that we're pursuing, obviously, is having this sort of exhibition platform online, um, and that requires the full resources of the gallery and support staff. No comment. <laughs> um, in the post-war department, we just finished growing out a team. So we went from having a kind of skeletal online team. Now we have six people working on that full time, very focused on it. And we've increased the sales 
pretty substantially in two years. So for now, I think we're looking good, but more to come in the future. I, I think you need a mix of both, obviously. Um, and obviously, you know, I, I was kind of excited to be in the room, and hopefully, you guys will be checking uh, the the careers page. <laughs> Hi, um, just a quick question regarding your margins on the on versus offline platforms, considering sales. Um, uh, well, sorry, considering costs should be ridiculously lower on the online. Do you thus take much lower margins on the online? At Christie's, we charge the same because we do keep everything in the building, exhibit it, and print a catalog still. So those those are parallel between live and online. We don't distinguish either. I'm sure some enterprising consigner could probably try to use that as a negotiating uh, for leverage. But as of now, everything's the same. Well, as you discussed earlier, uh, an integral part of your ability to sell is the 14, 16 locations around the world and five for, for you. I mean, it's separating out channels on a cost basis is always is a notoriously hard thing to do uh, with a business. But does that allow you to do something different with the pricing in what you would sell through the viewing rooms? So we're, we're trying to not take too many risks or make too many changes in the sense that, again, we want to have the fewest variables. In, if something succeeds or fails, we want to be able to isolate why we think that is. So to get cute with changing the pricing or something like that, we wouldn't know if that's why it failed, if it didn't succeed. So again, we're trying to keep things as close to the same as possible and just see if we have value added in terms of attracting new people maybe selling some things we didn't think we could have sold before. Hi. Um, so in all of these situations, um, we've been talking about post-war and contemporary. And I'm, I'm just curious to know if you think that the successes you've had are also transferable to some of the more traditional collecting categories. Um, old masters, for example, it's not open to transparency. In the past, it hasn't been, or, or even the decorative arts, do you see that, that there's options there? And if so, what recommendations would you give? I, I think if anything, decorative arts was a precursor to the contemporary art sales in some ways, because I mean, if you look at it, something like First Dibs is much more evolved as a platform and an e-commerce um, site. So I think, you know, for the sort of I would guess for jewelry, and certainly I know for, with decorative arts, there's sort of already more of an established history there. Um, I don't. I think you should speak to old masters. Yeah. Um, we actually we do have old masters online sales. I'm definitely not the expert to speak about those, but I have heard through the online grapevine that they do very well. In fact, um, so also a bit of news for me, but I've heard this. Well, there, there's also you know the size of post-war and contemporary makes it easier to conduct that kind of business in some of the other categories. There was just some news recently about um, the watch vertical, I can't even pronounce their uh, name, uh, hiring you know someone to do commerce because they own a lot of trust with their readers and so that makes transactions e easier. And so I think there's a, a bit of an interplay between 
the size of the market. If you're the only seller of, say, you know, Victorian paintings, uh, it, you can't, you know, the difference between online and going, calling the gallery or emailing someone directly is uh, very small. But if it's too big, then you need to sort of create something that's sort of in the space. And that's, I think, part of what the brand is so important here. You know, uh, in all of your cases, your brands are go far beyond the art world. There are many people who don't know artist names, but know the three brands that you guys represent. And I also just think somebody, you know, we represent Takashi Murakami. Takashi has a huge social media following of his own. He's collaborated with Louis Vuitton. He's collaborated with Virgil Abloh. There are all these ways in which his audience overlaps, you know, his social media audience overlaps with ours. So that makes that a lot easier to target. I think finding, you know, identifying who that other audience is and creating the overlap is just less obvious and less um, fluid in that regard. Hi, um, I'm just curious about the level of curation in some of these online exhibitions and sales. Um, I know Viv with some of our sales, um, lot placement is a huge concern, capitalizing on the momentum of the sale. Um, and then Elena, you talked about it being like a the sixth gallery space. Um, are there exhibition catalogs being created for the online sales? Is there the same level of creation you would see in the you know in person gallery sales? Or sorry, exhibitions. <laughs> um, well, I actually think the the current uh, viewing room that we have up is a excellent example of that because it is. Um, is a viewing room of Raymond Pettibon, which was curated uh, by one of our gallery directors. Um, and the amazing thing to me was really that, you know, in striving to get something that is really new to the market, we were able to um, get works which have never been shown before from the 1980s. And we had one of our directors of the gallery work closely with the artist to really um, bring together this collection of 80s works that was made during the period that the artist was in LA. We have, you know, content around it. We have video and um, this amazing commentary um, by the artist. And so to me, all of this sort of represents a, a very uh, deep level of curation that you would very much like you would have for an exhibition. Um, additionally, it's nice that this could live on and really um, be, you know, be brought to a bigger audience than um, maybe a show in a single location could. Um, you know, alongside your question that, yes, we do do a press release, for example, for a show like that. We will have fact sheets and all of the sort of research that goes into um, a traditional, you know, exhibition will then also be in parallel to one that is online only. So that would be the, the, again, the thesis we're experimenting with is that since the potential online buyer is doing more of the heavy lifting themselves, meaning we can't speak for ourselves because they're, you know, they're unknown to us up until a certain point, the more academic information we provide for them to dig their teeth into, the better. That seems logical to us. We, we still don't have enough of a way to quantify that that actually translates, but that would be the logic there. Yeah, I mean, our online sales are equally as curated as all the other sales we offer in the post-war department in terms of um, pricing. We have some high-value lots, some lower-value lots. Maintaining the quality throughout is really important and makes people trust that as a platform to come back to. 
Uh, I have a question, not necessarily about the sales that are conducted in uh, at your gallery spaces, but more about kind of thinking a little bit broader about kind of the archival aspect of this. I know that, you know, when in, in post-war and contemporary and, and kind of all of the various departments at Christie's, when we look at kind of exhibitions and what, what, what a work has been in throughout its lifetime, you know, there's a very easy record in terms of books. You can go to the NYPL, you can go to any various kind of libraries and kind of find these things. Is, are these uh, exhibition spaces whatever they are right now, are they being archived at all? And is there any way that, I mean, as we see, like going to somewhere like the Whitney and seeing Nan Golden's slideshows, which can now only be played on these kind of very old machines, is, is because we're so cutting edge and, and technology is developing so fast, are we risking maybe losing a little bit of this time as we go forward? Someone once described the internet as a slow motion Snapchat that uh, over time things disappear and we don't even realize that they've uh, di disappeared. I, I, I'm assuming the answer is you guys haven't thought about that or, or have you? I, I love the question. I mean, it's it's a like a romantically nerdy thing to be concerned about. And I, I nothing appeals more to me than the idea that somebody would care enough 15 years from now to, you know, to want to comb through this period. I bet we're probably not taking enough of that into into we are we aren't but again we're we're doing it in a much more isolated way. I, again, these guys would be better people to ask. You I mean, don't catalog externally when you show something at an art fair booth, so it's not listed on the work was exhibited at you know at uh, Art Basel Hong Kong in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, is it? I mean, which would be the kind of rough equivalent to you know, appearing in the online viewing room? Uh, well, I, you know, I think as an industry, it's not done, but I think as sort of an interesting, as an interesting counterpoint, I mean, large galleries have started publishing these beautiful catalogs to coincide with major art fairs. And so I think that's where really there's kind of this interesting terrain. And I think where everyone is um, still very much figuring things out is, you know, as, as we move forward, what, what it means to archive and, you know, what, is kind of becomes archive worthy. Um, and so, for example, all, even all the Instagram posts that one does, you I, know. I was just going to say that one of the crazy things is how uh, siloed Instagram is and it uh, not taggable in an outside way. And there's so much of a record on there, but it's lurking whether, you know, people can see it in the um, hashtags and, and all is different from uh, whether it can actually be crawled and uh, referenced. Completely, and I, th I think you know that we're seeing sort of artists who almost write their own sort of autobiographies through Instagram, and how will that get preserved and archived? It's going to be very interesting, and a question that I think we're all dynamically engaged with. Um, you spoke about conversion, and conversion kind of being two points of conversion potentially of inquiry to sale, and then also the conversion of an online participant buyer to actually being someone in your gallery in the brick and mortar. So for conversion of inquiry to sale, given that you're expanding your team, given that the price point is lower, how are you sort of setting those goals of what is our conversion rate? And then Sam, also for the life cycle, what do you sort of see given the fact that, as well as for you, Elena, that these price points ultimately and where you go is actually a huge step up. If anything, Christie's maybe has a more created offering of various price points, various artists, but how do you sort of see the life cycle of this buyer going through your gallery, given that there is such a tremendous difference between what these offerings are? 
you want to answer? So, um, so I, I think it's uh, that was sort of a two-part question, <laughs> but but I'll start with the fact that um, I don't think I think it's simplistic to say that um, online is suitable for a certain type of price point, and that's something. Um, I, I did not say tonight, I'll just point out, but because it's really the kind of inventory you put in. Um, and if you put, um, and if you display and exhibit desirable sort of inventory that is you know, fresh to the market, much like you would in an exhibition or an art fair booth, I think you are able to find obviously the right collectors. And so um, you know, while there is sort of a notion that of course, um, as Sam mentioned, the lower price point edition works are um, easier to sell online, I really think it's a quality of the inventory at the end of the day. Um, and for the collector sort of life cycle, you really see as, um, as a holistic um, you know, entity. And there, you know, we just want to really be able to, if we meet a collector online, really then bring them into our sphere um, and you know, continuously invite them to art fair booths and um, exhibitions, openings, events, um, and really don't differentiate between online and offline. It really is just is a way to meet our collectors where they are. And so sometimes it's already existing collectors or ones that have are known to the program. Sometimes it's new collectors, um, obviously. And, you know, it, it sort of it's just becomes one whole um, way of interacting. So I have a similar answer that may sound overly simplistic, which is that whatever is true of or whatever is best for the business in the traditional model, the same is true here, which is that we have a gallery exhibition, we have an art fair booth. The absolute number one best outcome that could occur is a person we've never met or heard of walks in and buys something sight unseen, you know, at first contact for $20 million. That would be an incredible outcome, and if that happened every day, we would be very happy. So. The, the, the soft <laughs> thud of large checks on the right. desk, I believe, is the description. So the same outcome online would make us equally, if not more, happy. So the question is, can we build, again, a, a, you know, a spider web or a mousetrap trap or an apparatus to meet someone like that and directly, efficiently transact with them at that level? Because once that person has spent $20 million with us on an artwork, we're going to probably do more business with them hopefully and at least keep offering them a lot of work and you know keep them in our in our lives so that would be the goal is to get to that point you take precedence thank you um all three of you discussed how um i guess the obvious benefit of selling online is accessibility and how democratic it is, how you can um, reach, even though these are all international brands, you can reach people in places maybe you don't have galleries or we don't have our auction house. Um, and it, I found it really interesting that you sort of approach online sales to the same way as um, in-person um, in exhibitions, that you still, like, exhibition catalogs, everything comes in, everything's photographed, all that. But I guess like with since there are additional logistical and legal challenges when you sell online because of just different uh, legislative restrictions in, say, Europe versus the US, how do you mitigate those differences or don't ship to XYZ country? Um, does that play at all into your curation or not really? 
No. Um, when we hold an online sale, it shows up on our website globally, and you can bid globally. Um, you can ship globally, but you are basically held to the fact that the point of sale is taking place in New York, um, which I guess is the same for all of us in that way. Um, it, yeah. Is that the same for all of you? I mean, I mean you, if you, run you, your you, you have you New have a UK uh, a gallery. Uh, you have you know uh, uh, galleries in different jurisdictions. Uh, are all transactions done out of New York, or they're done locally? Uh, I'm assuming. Well, we hold online sales in New York, London, and Hong Kong. So based on the sale site, you're basing all the regulation around where that point of transaction is taking place. And do you make decisions about you know when you're at an art fair? Is it Zwerner, New York, or Zwerner, London, or Gagosian, Hong Kong, depending on the art fair? Or it, when a transaction is done as an, uh, at an art fair outside of, you know, in Paris, at, you're at FIAC, uh, is it done as a local through the Paris uh, branch of your gallery, or is it done through uh, sort of the, the home office, as it were? Yeah, so th they find the, in general with the art fairs, they find the most tax advantageous proximate location to run everything through. Which, I mean, I think that's why we all end up in Switzerland once a year is because that's, for everybody, the most tax advantageous place to be. With the online thing, with us, it's, again, kind of the other way, which is I may have a painting in LA and I don't have to pay to ship it to Hong Kong or wherever the art fair is. And that's a, a cost we've saved and or haven't had to discuss with the consigner it would be, that would have to come up in the conversation with the potential buyer and say, hey, just so you realize, this is in LA, these are what the tax implications would be. But, that, but that's pretty standard for us, is to make sure that is addressed as you're getting close to resolving a sale. Noah, you were up. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so I, I think that, Obviously, the three of you represent three of the most storied brands in art market history. Um, so with, with that in mind, I mean, that, that brand, these brands obviously are a great, great advantage, and, and you can lean on that to a great extent. So I'm wondering, from your perspective in thinking about this, how much does all of this transfer to, you know, the sort of, the 20-something-year-old um, Christie's education master's degree graduate who's starting their own space down in, you know, Lower East Side who can't really afford to have that kind of visibility to then sell online and, and, and transfer, you know, sort of take advantage of that digital space. Obviously, it's difficult, right? So I don't know, thoughts about that? I mean, to me, um, it's somewhat the opposite, um, much like... Um, any you know kid with a laptop can create a startup and really with an idea you can really shape something i feel like here actually from what i've seen um of younger friends opening galleries and having spaces and curatorial projects all of a sudden you know back in the 80s you had to have a ground floor space in soho to have foot traffic 
then with obviously the image economy and things shifting into much more fairs and online iterations, suddenly you can have a gallery in the basement of a Chinatown mall or on the fifth floor and really still potentially have the same impact and serve your artists in still um, a great way without, because you're not relying necessarily on just the, you know, passing by crowd on Saturdays because they know where to look for you because Instagram, because Artsy, because these online platforms have become such valuable tools. Yeah, I was actually going to say download Instagram, WeChat, and WhatsApp. Um, those, I think, are the three biggest places that online sales happen. Um, I have clients tag photos that they like at an art fair that I'm not at, and they can't get past your wait list, and they say, go find this painting. Um, and that's a really great way to meet clients and to sell paintings. Um, WeChat is basically the key to all of transacting with Asia, um, and WhatsApp is a great way to send PDFs on your phone um, and sell paintings on the road. So I would say those three apps make it a lot easier to be an art dealer with or without a business card somewhere. Oh, I would say, to balance that out, the horrible news is we, all, we are all, in fact, indeed benefiting from, you know, have someone else or many, many other someone else's having built these huge brands. And I do have compassion for the fact that most of what we're telling you here tonight can't just readily be applied. Um, you know, we are definitely working from a position of strength in history, and I think someone else will need to be a lot leaner and more resourceful and experimental, but I think everyone knows, you know, I think those people are here, so. Do you think um, anyone can build that sort of thing uh, faster? Uh, now, I mean, obviously, there's an enormous amount of investment that went into creating, certainly, Christie's over, uh, you know, uh, three centuries uh, and, and the several decades for uh, both of your galleries. The question is, is that somewhat locked in, therefore locking out new people? You, you, you know, in internet terms, you, you're the, the fang, um, and it's hard for anyone else to sort of get in and challenge Apple and Amazon and uh, uh, Google? Or is it because the tools are there if you kind of get the right artists and you know, maybe have uh, a good amount of luck, you could build faster to a level of being some sort of a brick? I think the people who are going to build faster are going to be going more direct, meaning I think artist direct to buyer is going to scale up really, really quickly and easily. Um, I don't know about, I mean, I think Artsy is in a way, theoretically, the next big brand in that, you know, in that kind of pantheon because they have a big head start on their competitors. But I think the thing that someone could catch wildfire with is, you know, posting things and having people want them and selling them immediately to those people and cutting out the middleman or many middlemen. I would also add that, you know, I, I think it is sort of the place of some of these larger um, both entities to think about ways which to make it sustainable. Um, and obviously, you know, I think that's a bigger question, but I know that even in sort of the time I've been there, um, getting to curate a couple uh, projects online where I could actually actively involve much younger galleries and highlight their programs and artists in a very um, vocal, open way has, um, you know, very much aligned with what I believe in and how I want to support emerging artists. Well, in that, that sense, you, you all, um, have an interest in becoming platforms, right? Having not just what the the people you do direct business with and directly represent, but create some sort of 
uh, uh, outer ring of people who are loosely associated with, with you so that everyone benefits, so that you, I mean, we talk about this often, how do you create the next generation? Uh, uh, who are the, the, either the gallerists who support the artists or how do the artists get to the point where they can be amplified uh, by a big brand? Uh, it sounds like there's not really an answer to that. That's just sort of the next uh, phase of all of this. Uh, I think uh, uh, people will stick around, so if you have questions you uh, want to ask in, in person, please feel free, but otherwise I hope you will join me in thanking Vivian, Elena, and Sam. This has been fantastic. And thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 